Welcome to UCI Law Talks, presenting bold perspectives on law from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join the conversation on Twitter at UCI Law, hashtag UCI Law Talks. Welcome to UCI Law Talks. I'm Jonathan Glader, and this week I'm speaking to Shaheen Talesh, Assistant Professor of Law here at UCI with a joint appointment in Criminology, Law and Society, and Sociology at the University. Thank you for joining us, and welcome. Thanks for having me. So I was trying to figure out how to describe you and your research and decided I shouldn't try that. I should ask you to start by telling us a little bit about what your research program encompasses. Sure. So uh, I write about how private organizations respond to legal regulations and what these responses, how these responses impact rights in terms of procedural fairness and substantive justice. Now, more broadly, I'm an empirical legal scholar, which means I go out and collect data on sort of how law is operating in society, and then I report findings on that. I'm also what's considered a law and society scholar, so I'm particularly interested in the gap between the law in action and the law in the books. So the law in the books would be what courts, statutes, and what administrative regulations say versus how law is implemented on the ground in action in society among individuals and organizations in society. And so sometimes, even though the law in the books says one thing, the law in action or how law is implemented and interpreted on the ground among the lives of individuals and organizations is very different. And I'm very much interested in capturing that gap and explaining and theorizing that gap. When we're talking about empirical work, I think many of us have in mind some notion of, of big, objective, easily quantifiable data. Mm-hmm. But the kind of research that you're doing, it sounds like, is a little bit different. Can, can you explain a little bit about how you get at uh, the, the gap, as you put it? Sure. So uh, that's correct that empirical legal scholarship has been uh, more recently defined as largely quantitative, doing lots of statistics, uh, et cetera. But um, there's a a large portion of people who also do what's called qualitative empirical work here. So I do, um, I go into the field and I interview um, research subjects. I do what's called ethnography, which means I go into a field, I go into an organization, for example, and I spend a lot of time watching the organization, the people, um, the interactions on the ground, and I'm there for a very long time, so long that I start to see repetitive behaviors and I can start to Um, deduce findings, if you will. And so I do participant observation, I do interviews, I do archival historical work, which means I go into archives and I collect lots of history on a statute, for example, or um, an organization, for example, and I um, code or or use various empirical tools to make findings. So um, empirical legal scholarship, I think, um, is defined more properly, defined more broadly as including both qualitative empirical work and quantitative empirical work. It sounds like what you're doing is, dare I say, kind of like being a reporter. Um, I mean, it's it's similar to being a reporter, um, you know, asking different questions. And I think uh, the big distinction would be that, of course, when I go into the field, I have a research question, and that research question is, is often generated from various theories. Um, so I draw from political science studies of, um, 
of, of interest groups and businesses. I draw from what sociology, what's called organizational sociology, and how organizations respond to laws. So my research questions and my questions in the field are derived from various theories that I'm trying to test or to explore or to extend or to refine. So in that sense, it would be a little bit different. But I do think some of the techniques are, are similar. Um, although I think another distinction would be that I'm going to take the interviews or the participant observation findings that I have and code them for various trends, whereas I think reporters are not typically coding data, if you will. And so that's a big distinction, I think. But there are similarities. So that raises the question then about the, the research question underlying the paper that, uh, that you sent me before, before we started this conversation. Can you say a little bit about what your what the question was that you wanted to set out and answer? Sure. Uh, I, the papers, the title of the paper is "The Process Is the Problem." It's a spinoff of a very famous book written by a mentor and friend and uh, Malcolm Feely, who wrote a famous book in the '70s called "The Process Is the Punishment." And they looked and studied uh, through ethnographic research lower criminal courts in New Haven, and he came to the conclusion that look. Criminal defendants have a lot of substantive rights and due process protections, but the process is the punishment. Uh, they can't effectuate those rights, particularly in these lower criminal courts, uh, because to come to the hearing, they have to take off time from work. There's inconvenience. There's uh, difficulties and challenges in finding a lawyer. And so he concludes that the process is actually the punishment. And so I've written a paper that's tried to draw on some of my research and uh, of course, I'm somebody who doesn't really study criminal law, but studies civil. And um, my finding uh, in s looking at the civil justice system as well as alternative dispute resolution systems, in particular arbitration, is that the process isn't the punishment, it's a problem. Um, and so the paper really walks people through the civil justice system and the various stages of litigation through pleadings, discovery, motion practice, class actions, and talks about what the goals of each of those mechanisms are and how um, through the rules and the alteration of the rules, the process, the process through which litigants use these systems has become problematic. And so I make the point that, look, there are more substantive rights than ever before. Individuals in society have more consumer rights than ever before, more civil rights on the, on the books than ever before. There are more substantive protections than ever before. Uh, but uh, the process, the procedures, the rules of the game are problematic. And so it's very hard for people in action, right? So we have the law in the books and the law in action to effectuate those substantive rights that we have. And so there's a problem. And so that's what the paper walks people through in sort of step-by-step -step form. You call it, I, I think I'm remembering it right, that there's a, a deformation, right, <laughs> right. Of, of, of civil procedure here that, that creates this gap between the reality and, and what the law, right, purports to, to offer. And I want to make sure we explore a little bit the nature of your critique. So yes. you, you, you identify specific mm -hmm. um, trends and different aspects or, or different moments in the litigation process that work against um, civil litigants. And I, I wonder if you can just Take us, take us through them. What yeah, are the... Absolutely. And before I do that, I want to make one point, which is that the paper talks about uh, the idea that the, the advocacy of private organizations and the defense bar um, have created a situation where the Supreme Court has announced a lot of decisions that have 
caused the civil justice system to have procedural problems. The rules have been changed. The court cases have interpreted the rules in a way that have made it very problematic for litigants to effectuate their rights. Okay, so that's a very important underlying theme to the paper that I want to get out at the outset. And so you say, well, okay, tell us more. So I will. Let's take pleadings. Pleadings are uh, the initial stages of litigation. You file uh, formal documents to the court. In the case of a plaintiff, they file a complaint, and then the defendant files an answer, right? This is the initial stages of litigation. Now, originally, when the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure were enacted in 1938, the idea of the pleadings was, the purpose of the pleadings was to give notice to the other side of the lawsuit, what the major claims are, to initiate the lawsuit, to think of a funnel starting very broadly. We let lots of cases into the court system, and eventually we will funnel out the bad cases that don't need to be in and be left with the cases that should go through the justice system. Um, and in fact, Rule 8A2 states that uh, the complaint should offer a short and plain statement showing that the pleader, i.e. the complaint, complainant is entitled to relief. Okay, in famous Supreme Court case, Conley v. Gibson says as long as there's no set of facts such that plaintiffs couldn't establish their claim, the motion to dismiss that the defendant brings to try to eliminate the lawsuit should be denied, right? So very broad starting. And what's happened uh, in the last, well, let's say eight to 10 years, there've been two major Supreme Court cases, the Twomley v. Bell Atlantic, Iqbal v. Ashcroft, 2007 and 2009, that have uh, changed the pleading standards dramatically. Um, we no longer have what's called a notice pleading standard. We have what most scholars think of as a heightened pleading standard. Uh, you must show not, you must show that your claims that you're alleging in your complaint are plausible um, and requiring much more facts, um, conclusions in the complaint are to be stricken. And so um, it has put tremendous burden on plaintiffs um, in pleading their cases and putting their complaints forward to allege facts, facts that often they don't have at the initial part of the lawsuit. And so empirical data now, you know, we have data. We come back. I'm a person that loves to talk about data. And so now we have data that suggests that defendants and, def and defense lawyers are bringing more motions to dismiss, challenging those complaints, and more motions to dismiss are being granted. Uh, Def, uh, defendants are bringing more motions to dismiss in cases that they probably wouldn't have under the old standard because under the old standard it wouldn't have been worth their time or money to bring those cases and especially of note is that in cases of discrimination or civil rights where the information that plaintiffs need is in the hands of the defendants um, are very hard now, it's very hard for plaintiffs to bring those lawsuits because the second stage of a lawsuit, which is discovery, which is where you try to gather facts from the other side, hasn't taken place yet. And so it's put a lot of pressure on plaintiffs in cases of civil rights or discrimination or cases where it's very hard to have the information of you know, a pattern and practice of discrimination at the outset of the lawsuit. So it's put a lot of pressure on uh, plaintiffs. Um, and so that's sort of stage one, right? The initial outset of, of, of the lawsuit is the complaint, which was supposed to be broad, and to allow cases in has now become much more narrow. I just want to make sure we're all clear on, on so you alluded to Rule 8. Mm -hmm. Rule 8 of what? Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. So the federal rules were created in 1938 to govern um, how federal courts are to handle civil, not criminal cases. And working with your funnel analogy, it sounds like what the court has done, to, not so much that the rules have changed, but the interpretation of the rules uh, has changed. 
Um, and the effect of that is the funnel is, in a sense, getting shallower. Become a straw. Alternatively. <laughs> the funnel has become a straw. Uh, and so uh, cases are being winnowed out at the outset when, in fact, the design of the system was to actually allow a funnel to have more cases come in. And then as we work through the cases through discovery and motions for summary judgment, we can funnel out you know, the cases that don't necessarily survive. Right? And that actually leads right into discovery, if I can yes. talk. So, so let's say your case does survive um, the pleading stage and, and the motion to dismiss brought by the defendant is denied. Okay, now you conduct what's called discovery, which is you know, when both uh, uh, plaintiffs and defendants try to discover facts to support their case. And, um, and uh, there's been an evolution in discovery. The idea of discovery initially was to allow parties access to information so that they can effectuate their case and um, seek relief. And the scope of discovery has changed in the last 35 years. Um, and that's what I want to just elaborate on here. In the 1970s, the scope of discovery uh, was any matter which is essentially relevant to the subject matter involved in the pending action. Very broad. Uh, in the in the round 2000, there were amendments. I'm skipping some amendments <laughs> in 83 and 1993. But the scope of discovery was narrowed from subject matter to... Uh, any matter that is relevant to the claim or defense of any party. So we've gone from subject matter to claim or defense. Now, to be fair, at the time, uh, the rule makers did include that relevant information was information that was reasonably calculated to lead to the discovery of admissible evidence. Okay. Well, in about six weeks, December 1st, the rules have changed. The scope of discovery has changed once again. Okay, and uh, this has been approved all the way through the, the, the rulemakers process is an extensive process goes up to the, the courts and the judges even involving some justices on the Supreme Court and starting in December 1st, uh, the new rule eliminates the language referring to the likelihood of leading to discovery of admissible evidence and instead requires that discovery, the scope of discovery is only that it can be, it needs to be proportional to the needs of the case, proportional. So now, uh, the scope has gone from subject matter uh, to the claim or defense to now it's just discovery is proportional. And, and, the, and when evaluating proportionality, courts are permitted to consider the amount in controversy, the importance of the issues at stake in the action, the party resources, the importance of the discovery, and most notably whether the burden or expense of the proposed discovery outweighs its likely benefit. And you say, well, why does that matter? How does that matter? How is this going to play out? Well. What it means is now plaintiffs are going to have to, at the outset, show that their discovery requests, the documents they're requesting, the questions they're asking of the other side, um, is proportional. And, and it's going to allow those factors I just rattled off are going to be mechanisms from which defense firms re representing defendants are going to object. They're going to say, um, look, this request is too broad. It's it's too expensive. It's it's not um, commensurate with the party's resources. Um, and so it's given, again, a series of procedural weapons for defendants to use to block discovery. And it's going to create probably more motions to compel and more discovery battles and more clogging of the civil justice system. When, again, we go back, the scope of discovery originally was supposed to be broad, and again, it's become narrowed, okay? And the paper... You know, so I've, I've, we've talked about the pleadings, the outset. We've talked about fact investigation, discovery. Then the, the paper takes you, takes the reader 
all the way through. Motions for summary judgment is another key mechanism in the litigation uh, process, if you will. It's a situ. It's a. It's a. It's a procedural tool to allow uh, parties to have the judge resolve the case when there are no issues of material fact in dispute, and one side is entitled to a judgment or a decision as a matter of law. It's an opportunity to take the case away from a jury. Um, and uh, the summary judgment measure, if you will, has uh, changed over time. In the 1980s, there were three Supreme Court cases that came out all sort of within days of each other, if you will, and uh, sort of same period of time, if you will, and it's expanded the applicability of summary judgments. It's made it easier for defendants to bring summary judgment motions and ease the initial burden uh, that defendants. So now they can point, defendants can bring a summary judgment and point to the absence of evidence on the other side, as opposed to being required to offer evidence. And so um, this has caused uh, the litigation process to be inundated with motions for summary judgment. And uh, motions for summary judgment where defendants essentially say to plaintiff, hey, you can't prove your case. We're going to move for summary judgment. Um, and it's forcing plaintiffs to now offer more evidence early on and reveal their, the facts of their case, the strengths and weaknesses, et cetera, et cetera. And it has created, again, another burden on the process. Right? And so at each stage, you see the process being problematic, if you will. Um, class actions is another one. Um, with the recent decision in the Walmart v. Dukes case, 2011, the Class Action Fairness Act, a, f a federal statute, these, uh, the, the court case as well as the, um, the legislation have made it more difficult for classes to come together. And I should probably mention you know, what a class action is. Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity for, it's a, it's a, an opportunity for individuals to, um, who may have small cases, if you will, to unite, and so small that you wouldn't bring a lawsuit, but, um, but have common interests, common issues, and so a class of individuals get together and form a larger group, which then brings the lawsuit. Uh, so you see this often in situations against big companies. Um, and so it's a real important mechanism in our federal rules to allow the little guy um, to partner up and become bigger, if you will, to go against the big corporation. Um, and very inherent in the ideas and concepts of procedural democracy. Uh, and what's happened over time is through S Supreme Court decision in 2011, Class Action Fairness, Fairness Act has made it a lot harder, I think, to have class classes form and go through the justice system. In particular, class certification is much harder now because the court must certify that, in fact, there is a class here. Um, and the Walmart case has made it a lot harder. Um, the Class Action Fairness Act has made it a lot easier for defendants to what's called remove cases from state court and get them into federal court where federal judges are a little bit tougher in certifying classes, okay? So again, you see that the, these are not substantive rights we're talking about. Everything I'm talking about so far has been process, procedure, the rules of the game, right? And the rules of the game are being tilted in one direction. And so the process here is the problem, okay, in the civil context. Right. So what this this is tilting the playing field in favor of defendants, right? Correct. Okay, and and um, 
the only way this is happening is not right through manipulation of procedure. I should be careful about using the word manipulation, but through changes to the rules of civil procedure. We're also seeing, and we saw in the covered in the New York Times recently. Um, increased use of arbitration clauses, right? So essentially directing um, complainants out of the right, the state's formal adjudicatory process, right, into something else. And this you've also looked at. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found? Sure. Um, so you're absolutely right. Uh, you might say hearing this, hey, you've convinced me that, wow, our civil justice system is problematic. We'll go use an alternative forum. Uh like arbitration. It's quicker. Theoretically, it's faster. It's cheaper. It's thought to give parties more voice. Maybe that's a better spot. Well, my empirical findings suggest uh, the process is the problem there too. Okay. Um, And that's where I've devoted, you know, a large portion of my research for the past decade in exploring um, how different arbitration systems and the design of these systems can facilitate consumer inequality and actually inhibit consumer inequality. So you have this big debate going on. The New York Times has recently run uh, a nice piece, a series of pieces on class action, uh, arbitration clauses, I should say, not class action clauses, Mm -hmm. arbitration clauses. These are clauses in contracts that essentially say, hey, if you want to bring a grievance, you're going to have your case heard not in the public courthouse, but in the private courthouse called arbitration, where we will have three or one uh, or a series of people hear the case. Usually these are private lawyers, sometimes retired judges, sometimes just people hearing these cases outside the court system. Sometimes these are funded by private businesses. Sometimes there are quasi-public functions. But you're not going to have your day in court. You're going to have your day in uh a different forum. So I examined how arbitration processes were essentially codified into law uh, for uh, consumers to use when resolving warranty disputes, especially um, warranties issued by automobile manufacturers or lemon laws, if you will. And so my work pays particular attention to how private organizations often shape the content and meaning of legislation and regulatory rules that are designed to regulate them. So. Through participant observation at arbitration training programs and interviews with actors in the Lemon Law field, these are sort of automobile disputes, consumers, you have manufacturers. Um, I examined and compared how two different arbitration systems essentially operate. One that is funded by private organizations, in particular automobile manufacturers in California, and one run by the state, in particular I studied Vermont. Now, it's important to see that the design of these two arbitration systems are different. California has a private system uh, where the manufacturers fund the program and contract out with a third-party organization that is technically independent of the manufacturers to train their arbitrators and administer their Lemon Law program. The arbitrators consist of about 65% lawyers, 35% non-lawyers. Now, Vermont has a state-run dispute resolution system held in a public forum um, where they use an arbitration board or a panel of three citizens, a technical or mechanical expert, and um, an automotive dealer. So they hear it as a panel. Um, California hears it as a single. And so there are differences in these two systems. And essentially what I find is that despite 
the lemon laws on the books being the same, the law in action in both states is really different based on the way business and consumer perspectives are accounted for in the design of the arbitration system. So arbitration uh, dispute resolution system design really matters. It's not so much as you hear even among the New York Times or in the debates among politicians, it's not so much about whether arbitration is a good thing or a bad thing or whether consumers win or lose. My point is uh, design really matters. It's not, a, it's, it's not that arbitration is a good thing or a bad thing, it's how you set these systems up that matter. And no one really looks into that. And this, what some of my research revealed is that, um, you know, in the California system run and funded by manufacturers, business values of rationality and efficiency and discretion flowed into the rules and the procedures and the meaning of law that was operating on the ground, mainly through an extensive training and socialization process. So shortly after these training programs began, uh, arbitrators were told to essentially shed any prior knowledge they have as a, as a lawyer and exclusively follow what they're told. And so my research shows that these training programs reshape the meaning of law in three ways. One, they build discretion uh, and flexibili flexibility in the legal rules and re remedies. They recontextualize legal rules and arbitrator decision-making around a non-legal business logic. And three, they, re they omit portions of the formal lemon law, and thus they reshape the meaning of the remaining lemon law statute. Okay? And as a result, the big finding in the paper is that arbitrators are taught to adjudicate these cases not in the shadow of the formal lemon law in the statutes, but in the shadow of an altered form of lemon law that mirrors the formal lemon law, but is filtered with business values and influence in really subtle ways. Um, and Vermont, on the other hand, anchors its neutrality and legitimacy of its structure arbitration system in a what I call a collaborative justice model that balances interested stakeholders, reflecting business and consumer logics in a state-funded and designed structure. So rather than, uh, unlike the extensive training in California, Vermont arbitrators are provided little to no training. They're essentially given a full copy of the statute and asked to review it. To the extent business values are introduced into the Vermont process by the presence of the automotive dealer and the mechanical expert, they're balanced with a competing consumer perspective by the presence of the three citizens, okay? And so the big, you know, my research, I've written multiple articles on this, but the, the big finding is that, you know, the design of the arbitration system, the processes, the procedures and rules can both facilitate consumer inequality and inhibit consumer inequality. Because what we find when I looked at outcome data is that consumers win twice as often in Vermont as they do in California. So consumers lose a lot in the private system. And that's something that politicians and policymakers and reporters talk a lot about, who wins and who loses. They talk a lot about arbitration being good and arbitration being bad, but less on how these processes operate. The devil is in the details. And we come back to the initial question, well, what's my research about? It's about those details. It's about qualitative empirical work. It's about getting on the ground and seeing how the law in action really operates. So are, what are the implications then of, of your findings? If you were in a position to advise mm -hmm. right, policymakers about what kinds of adjustments they should make, if you could tell California hypothetically, um, look at Vermont, these are changes you should make mm -hmm. if you want to have the following effects on outcomes. What kind of instructions, what kind of uh, uh, ramifications would you identify for them? Well, it's, a, it's a fabulous question um, and a really important one. And 
um, my I published an article in Law and Society Review uh, in 2012 that lays out the, the differences between Vermont and California. And so um, things like in California, the role of the fact finder, the role of the arbitrator, they're taught to be passive uh, fact finders, to call balls and strike and let the parties argue the cases. Well, who do you think has more information, knowledge, and experience in the arbitration forum, the manufacturer or the consumer, right? The manufacturer. In Vermont, panel arbitrators indicated that they felt the impartiality and neutrality of the process required arbitrators to be active fact finders, to ask those probing questions if the consumer didn't know the legal standard very well. So the role of the fact finder, I go through all of these things, training and socialization, maybe training, if you're going to allow training of arbitrators, maybe there should be some supervision over how that training process is operating, funding of the program, the role of the fact finder, the role of emotion and individual voice. Are you going to allow hearsay into these hearings or not? And I go through all these mechanisms and I show how both sides do it differently and how in California the repeat players gain very subtle advantages through these procedural steps, whereas in Vermont they inhibit uh, some of these very same procedural steps. So I'd say if I were um, you know, talking to the Consumer Protection Financial Bureau, which is looking into arbitration, or if I were talking to the legislators, I would say let's get past arbitration being a good or bad thing, and let's talk about how you design these systems because rules matter. Rules matter in the civil justice system. Rules matter in arbitration systems. Rules matter for your children playing soccer and basketball. Rules matter, right? And the design and then the implementation of these structures um, can affect who's going to win. And that's so, I mean, I think the devil is in the details, and unfortunately, legislatures and politicians don't ever want to get to that, that space that I'm doing the research on, on the ground, about role of fact finder, role of emotion, role of hearsay, and how this, in very subtle ways, can cause repeat players to gain very powerful and subtle advantages. Shaheen, this has been fascinating. And the, the details, the, the readiness to wade into them, is clearly something that I, I hope we're passing on to our students. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California Irvine School of Law.